You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody, you are listening to or watching Wake Up Call, the podcast. I am your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today is attorney John Rizvi. He is the founder of an IP law firm that is located in South Florida, but because he does IP, he can represent anyone anywhere in the United States, right? That's correct. Nationwide. So I I have to say, if you're watching, you can see that John is wearing a shirt that has the patent professor on it and it's does it have like the little trademark thing after it it does of course that would be lax if i didn't have that and uh you know red if if anyone ever comes to my office there's there's red everywhere like that's our our favorite color our coffee machines red our my glasses red uh it's kind of unusual for uh, a patent firm and you know, I started in New York with a, a traditional large IP firm where, which, which they were, and maybe this is like a, a rebellion against that. Like we had, uh, the partners would ask associates to put their jackets on when they were in the hallways uh, of the office in case a client was around. Um, and of course this was, I've, I've been practicing 25 years. So this was a long time ago. I wasn't this casual until the pandemic uh because that's when i finally ditched the tie and and said you know what this is uh at, at least for now i think this is how i'm going to come to work i love it i i just think that um you know the practice of law is changing a lot of things are changing obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic but i and i think also with millennials they kind of have a different attitude about work and productivity and they have this concept of a work-life balance. And I just don't think that law firms anymore need to have that really buttoned up demeanor anymore, like where they wear a suit and tie, especially and like what you just said, the, the partners were like, well, if there's a client around, you know, you have to look like a lawyer, right? And you do that by wearing a tie and a jacket. I just don't think it's like that anymore. Right. And if you, I mean, I can understand if you have, you know, a court appearance or if you're going to the patent office, the decorum of the court, but here in our office, I don't see any. The funny thing, and different professions uh, change. I mean, lawyers have always been the, I I think, one of the best dressed of of all professionals. Uh, And I was always jealous of my wife. She's a dentist and dentists go to work in scrubs and they're just so comfortable you know, like, oh, you know, you get to go to work like that. And I have to get this in, in South Florida. I mean, it's hot. And then you get this piece of fabric, which I don't even understand. Uh, everything else is improving, but the uh, the clip on tie never really caught on, which for us patent attorneys are like, what's wrong with it? It's this nice little clip. Your collars stays cool. You don't get this fabric around your neck. But um, But my dress with the start of the pandemic, I switched to, got rid of the tie, got rid of the suit and switched to these polo shirts. The poor dentists go to work now dressed as astronauts almost. They've got like their 
uh, K95 masks and then a double mask and then a face shield. Uh, yeah, it's like, like a, a whole a, hazmat thing on. Ex- exactly. So I guess mm. that's poetic justice in a, in a sense for 20 plus years of me being the one, you know, having to go to work like uncomfortable. Now it's well, going to be dentist for some time. I, he'll, he'll I would. Work. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. I, I would um, think, though, that for what you do and maybe it does just depend what type of firm you're at. But don't you get creative kind of quirky people? I, I would think those people are less corporate and, you know, they can kind of roll with you being different, having your brand, even if that's a red polo shirt. Right. It's so funny you say that because a lot of, um, believe it or not, a lot of people don't don't get that about inventors and about uh, about patent attorneys. Because I went uh, recently to a mastermind um, of lawyers on on uh, law firm growth, and I demonstrated my. I have for our firm, we have a. Uh, it started as a rap, a rap about patents, and then. Um, and then if he turned it into a jingle, so it's still, you know, it's not a rap, it's a jingle. And something one of the other attorneys said, it really irked me. And he said, but, but John, it looks like your, uh, uh, your marketing is going to be really attractive to people. Um, and I said, well, what, you know, what do you mean? Like he said, well, that's like maybe a personal injury attorney because anybody can get hit by a bus. So they, you know, or get into a car accident. So I can see them marketing to individuals and people, but, but you protect ideas. And it's like almost this feeling. So what do you think, who do you think comes up with ideas? There's this feeling as if it's all corporate, but like, what's, you know, who's Jeff Bezos? I mean, he's an individual who started in his basement, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Michael Dell, um, guess, where do I stop? Bill Gates, like all of these guys, they're individuals, this concept that there's going to be some, some, you know, some, like the innovation, the world changing ideas are going to come from large corporations. I mean, that's not, I just think it's ridiculous. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I had just had the opposite thought that it wasn't yeah, going to be. It's so refreshing that you said that. Cause you're thinking, well, gosh, you represent individuals. They're, they're quirky. They're, I'm like, yeah, that's where the ideas are coming from. I mean, look at, uh, uh, look at the electric car. You would think with all the, the money and political power and advantages that, General Motors and Chrysler and, and Ford and the, these companies had that they would be the ones really spearheading uh, the innovation, not Elon Musk with uh, Tesla. I mean, this is this is the, the big surprise is that the innovation is not coming from these big bureaucratic organizations. They're coming from people that can think outside the box. And well, maybe are- that person was thinking about like pharma companies that do need patents, right? And or big cup corporations like I don't I, I don't even know because this is my area, but like Tesla, you know, they they need to patent or copyright or whatever they need to do to protect their designs, their car right. designs. So maybe that's really where that person's head was. Right. But they, but even those big corporate, like, where do they start? Like even Google, like right now, like that's, you know, it was Larry Page and, uh, and Sergey Brin who came up with this. It was two individuals who came up with this algorithm. It wasn't, uh, uh, some huge corporate multinational corporation that developed this. Now, eventually if the ideas are, 
are good. They're going to, the company's going to grow. And of course they may have more patents. Uh, but that type of work to me is, is boring. I don't want, uh, I, I don't want to work for, uh, and I've done that work before. I don't want to work for other lawyers because once the companies get that big, they have in-house corporate patent departments and you have in-house attorneys that are farming the work out to outside law firms and supervising that work. And you're just a, a cog in a wheel. You, you get so far removed from the individual inventor and, and like these guys are, they're just so passionate about their idea. It's, it's, uh, it's, it fuels me. It's refreshing to see somebody that's, uh, that, that's willing to go like that, like risk that much for their idea, the belief that my clients have. And I never know which idea is going to be the one that, that changes the world, but yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And I, I actually want to know more about you personally. I mean, I, we could talk all day about, a patent versus a copyright versus a trademark and all those things. And, and I think that's really interesting and valuable, but I'm always interested in people like you and how they actually ended up doing what they do and what, you know, what their trajectory was and why that was interesting to them. And you did touch on it a little bit, but maybe we could just go back a little bit. Like, where did you grow up? You know, what was your childhood like? Yeah. So uh, and it's funny. I didn't, and I'm, I'm glad you're willing to go back that far because uh, I was like, let's go back to when I was, I was 12. I mean, I grew up in uh, Topeka, Kansas. And, uh, and I remember as a kid, like my, my dream at one point and sole ambition in life was to take the Rubik's cube. If you, if you remember what that is and make it yeah. round. And it's, so, and it's, you can tell the nerds early, right? That's, that's who, you know, the budding patent attorneys and engineers are. And I would take this thing apart with a, a, a screwdriver. I say this thing, cause there were several, my mom was constantly picking up like broken pieces of Rubik's cubes, I'd take them apart and try to figure out how they're put together uh, to make it round. And I had a, a sketchbook with like page after page of drawings of, of my design. Um, of this round Rubik's cube. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Like one day I went to the mall and my mom brought me to, uh, I said, I should say I was brought to the mall. When you're 12, you just brought places, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's this store KB toys and it's, it's still around. Um, not too many people are getting to the mall these days with the pandemic and Amazon and everything else. But inside KB toys, I was, I was in that, that uh, aisle with the puzzles and games and like my heart dropped, it was like right there was this round Rubik's cube. Uh, and they had, and it was, they had a better name than round Rubik's cube. Of course, they, they called it the impossible. And it was my, you know, it was my idea. I don't like the name. What's that? I don't like the name. Oh, the impossible. Well, yeah. I hate the name because I hated them at the time. It was like, I was thinking like, oh my God, they, they stole my idea. And, but I was not going to cry right there at the mall. And I had my mom with me and she had seen this sketchbook under my bed with like page after page of drawings. And she's been picking up all these broken pieces. So nobody knows you like your mom. And I didn't cry, but then I looked up at her and I see my mom starting to cry because she's, she knows how much this thing meant. And I, I like dragged her out of the store uh that's where at least then that's where your fr friends hung out and I didn't want to be seen at the mall with my mom crying 
in an aisle. But that that it, it was hard. And I know I know now, you know, in my job, a lot of other attorneys, they think, you know, John, you've got it so easy because you're not dealing with uh, the hard problem. At least that's their view. Like you're not dealing with somebody who's been hit by a, a drunk driver or in a car accident or or going through a divorce or audited by the IRS. You get to see happy, energetic inventors with ideas. But the, the reality is I have to do patent searches to find out if that idea is new. And I'm now in the profession where I have to give them the bad news if I do find that their idea already exists. And most of the time, that's that's the news I have to give. We'll do our research and we'll find other things out there. And that's tough. That's it's pretty, that's the worst part of, of my job because I know a lot of times by the time somebody comes and sees a patent attorney, this idea has been consuming them sometimes for years. And they've, they've put so much invested into it, just mentally, emotionally, sometimes financially. Sometimes they'll have prototypes made and, uh, and put a lot of money into the software and other things. And then to break the news to them, essentially that, hey, your round Rubik's Cube is, is great, but you're not the first one to think of this. That's hard. So. Yeah, I would think that would be. And so maybe, um, you know, what we could impart to our viewers is what advice would you give them? If you have an idea, do you kind of just rush over to the lawyer right away to, to make sure you protect it in some fashion right away, or at least find out if you even can before you put blood, sweat and tears into it? Right. Um, so the advice has actually changed drastically um, after pre-2013 and post-2013. So, so you might, the natural question, so what happened in 2013? So there's a big change in patent law that prior to 2013, the US patent system was a first to invent system. So as long as somebody could prove that they invented first, uh, you were okay. So if you, my advice at that time, prior to 2013 would be keep your receipts. If you make if you put a prototype together, keep all the evidence you can, start a logbook, document, get uh, any trusted um, witnesses to sign your logbook, uh, even video, pictures, whatever evidence you can show that you had the idea, uh, you know, the concept, work on that and perfect that uh, so you can file for the patent. Everything in the patent field like turned upside down in 2013 because the U.S. changed uh, the standard for awarding a patent from first to invent to first to file. So now it's whoever gets that patent application in earliest, they own the idea. And it doesn't matter if somebody comes along and has a better prototype and has tweaked it and it works better. Uh, it's kind of the patent law now just really incentivizes inventors to get that earliest rudimentary description in and file right away. I always thought that you couldn't patent a, an idea though. So what do you actually need to have to get a patent? Yeah. So, and that's the, uh, you, you cannot patent a, an idea unless it's, uh, the term reduced to practice, unless you can, uh, show someone in a patent application, how to make and use your, your concept. So the general concept, for example, 
of a time machine. If I'm thinking of a time machine and I don't know actually how it's going to be put together, that you can't protect. Uh, you have to have, you have to, you have to show how the thing's going to work. Uh, and that's why sometimes on, uh, you know, in, in television and in movies, it gives the wrong impression that it's the concept of like, oh, wow, you know, like human powered flight, but human powered flight's been in the minds, you know, of, of humans for thousands of years. It wasn't until the Wright brothers actually made it possible and figured out how to make it work that it becomes an invention. So the idea of human flight um, is not protectable, but you've got to have uh, a functional, actual useful product. And at that point it's protectable. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but that just seemed like a natural question. So I'm sorry that you um, didn't get your claim to fame um, inventing the round Rubik's cube. Did you have a name for it? Uh, I didn't. Well, I was too young to know about trademark law and about uh, infringement. And I was going to call it the round Rubik's cube. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's logical, right? But I'm thinking it's not a cube anymore. <laughs> it's not a cube anymore, number one. Number two, I'd, you know, that was before I knew that I would, you know, had I done that, it would be a cease and desist letter violating uh, the trademark rights of Rubik's Cube because it would be confusing consumers into thinking that it's the producer, the same manufacturer of the Rubik's Cube has come up with a round Rubik's Cube. So you can't, you know, now I know you can't do that, but that was the most creative name I had come up with at the time. Um, it was like, and, and it, you know, round is, is for a 12 year old, it's not really round. I mean, this is the engineering be speaking, it's spherical, right? Round is two dimensional. Uh, it's a, like a globe shaped spirit, uh, Rubik's cube, but that really gets wordy. And that's, that's even worse of a name than <laughs> very technical, very technical. technical. Spherical oh. Rubik's cube is not, would not do well. So what happened after that? I mean, obviously you were crushed. Uh, yeah, as, as crushed. Um, uh, but I, 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 I was constantly always like, taking things apart, like, and, trying to figure out how they work and trying to make them into other things. The, uh, our garage was, was full of uh, like a graveyard of, of, of items that I had either broken or my mom or parents were going to throw them away. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Don't throw that away. I want to, you know, I want to mess with it still. And then, uh, uh, so I ended up becoming an engineer um, and went on to uh, become an engineer and, I got interested uh, in, while doing my undergrad, we had a professor that was working on a project of taking crushed glass and uh, including that into roadways and highways so that uh, you could see better at night because the glass would reflect the light. And that's how I kind of got found out about the patent field. There was no, you know, this, I, I feel like I'm ancient, but there's no internet back then. So it's not like you go on and, and yeah. into the field. So that's how I was introduced to, uh, to patenting and what a patent is and does. And I worked as an engineer for a few years, but I, in the back of my mind, I just didn't want to work on one type of thing over and over again. And for a lot of engineers, that's what they end up doing. But patent law is just like, I'm blessed to be able to have no two days end up being the same because, you know, one inventor could have a physical product uh, and the next appointment could end up being software. 
So it's really a, a wide variety of, and, and now, and the, the world's always changing. Now we're getting a ton of ideas relating to cryptocurrency and NFTs and Bitcoin and stuff that five years ago wasn't even on the radar. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's still sort of confusing to me. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Because I'm kind of curious how you ended up being a lawyer when you were kind of like an inventor and you were, you know, taking things apart, figuring out how to put things together. So the engineering piece sort of makes sense to me. But I want to hear from you. What did you think you were going to do? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was going to, and this is, you know, I was going to protect inventors. And I thought, you know what, this is how, uh, uh, that's what patent lawyers, in my view, was for people that went, that worked directly with inventors and helped prevent, uh, you know, the inventor's idea from being stolen. And I did my research on um, like classic inventions and uh, like the Wright Brothers airplane, Thomas Edison's light bulb, Henry Ford's ideas, uh, the telephone. And it, it's so strange to me that I was finding all of those ideas seem to be patented by the same law firm uh, in New York City. And I, I looked into it. That was a law firm of, of Fish and Neve. And, and maybe it's naive to kind of think, I said, well, I want to work with this law firm because they're working with inventors and they're protecting these iconic inventions that uh, of, of the world. And I went to the, the I guess, the uh, guidance counselor or the, the career placement director at the University of Miami. And I told him I want to apply to Fish and Eve. And she did some research for me. And she said, John, you have uh, there's the second crush of <laughs> first, you know, first night coming up, being, having the, the Rubik's Cube. And then Deidre uh, uh, Rogan was her name. And she said, John, you have no chance. You have zero chance of working for this law firm. Uh, they, they only recruit at Harvard and Yale. And they're looking at students that had done summer internships. And I didn't, a summer internship didn't make sense to me. I was, as I had said, I was an engineer working full time and I went to law school at night, I put myself through law school, uh, through my job as an engineer. So you, you don't just quit after your first year summer and your second year summer and go do an internship. You can't do that. So uh, I ignored Deidre Rogan and I sent in my resume and an application to Fish and Eve. And I, I, I told this story in a, uh, in, in a TED talk a few years ago. And the anticipation is, well, if you're telling people about it, then it must have ended up good but <laughs> yeah got, that's what I'm thinking right but it didn't I got this this rejection letter uh and it, it stung hard it was like a, a kick in the gut um and I couldn't sleep that night and I just I tossed and turned and the next day I was working as a as a structural engineer on a and at the the job site where I was during the lunch hour um I took the letter with me and I drove uh to find a payphone. there weren't <laughs> these things didn't exist back then. I got to a payphone, and I remember standing there for like five minutes, mustering up the courage uh, to call. Uh, so I finally put in the quarter. I called Miss Rogan, and I told her, I said, uh, I got your letter, and I just kind of like bewildered because your law firm is the law firm that represented like the Wright brothers. And these were like two bicycle mechanics 
that invented the airplane. Like they didn't fit a perfect mold. Neither one of them whom went to college, only one of them finished high school. Uh, they're from Dayton, Ohio and had no investors. They're complete misfits. And she didn't let me get too far before she's like, Mr. Risby, uh, hiring committee decisions are final. And I don't understand what your point is. And I remember this like it was yesterday because I was, uh, like the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And I said, my point is that like the Wright brothers were, were misjudged, your firm is made a mistake on my application and they need to look at my application again. And I, <laughs> I got off the phone, I hung up. Uh, and I, I, I didn't really think it would make a difference, but I just thought I would feel better having gotten that off my chest. Like this was, I had brought so much hope to this law firm because every single one of the inventors I had read about uh, were misfits. Like, I mean, that they had represented was Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Alexander Graham Bell, the Wright brothers. And they are not going to give me a chance because I didn't do a summer internship. I mean, I finished at the top of my class. I passed the patent bar while I was a, a first year law student. And it just like it, it drove me nuts that they would do this. So I was like at least going to get, you know, give them a piece of my mind and then be prepared to move on. So about five days later, uh, I got another letter in the mail and I was you know, as a law student, I was scared. I didn't know if I was being sued or what was what was going on is from Fish and Eve. And uh, my hands were trembling. And I, I opened up that letter. And it was an invitation to join them uh, as an attorney in New York City. Wow. That was, wow. Like, you know, for me, I, could, I just couldn't couldn't believe it. And it literally was that that phone call um, where I I must have made an impression because I, I really pushed and gave the reasons why I think they're making a mistake. Uh, and I got an opportunity to start at Fish and Eve. Now, this is where the idealistic part was was shattered because here I'm expecting, okay, so where are the inventors? And like, I want like the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, but before they become Apple and Microsoft, I want to speak. But instead it was uh, like, day in and day out of, of meetings with corporate lawyers and MBAs. And it wasn't, it was five years and I hadn't had yet to meet an actual inventor of anything. It was just uh, several layers removed from the invention uh, was when the legal work was passed on to Fish and Eve. And I realized that they're no longer representing inventors like this. Their history was there. They were the patent firm that represented these iconic inventions, but today, they represented Exxon and Motorola and huge multinational corporations, with thousands and thousands of patents per year. And the lawyers didn't meet with the inventors. This was, you were meeting with lawyers. The lawyers that, the outside lawyers would meet with inside lawyers inside the corporation. And we would get the ideas patented for the inventor without ever having any consultations or meetings with them. And that was a, a real downer for me. That was not what I expected the practice of patent law to be like. But at least you did it. You got up to the firm that you wanted, which, yep. and that's really admirable the way that you did it. That's, I love stories like that. <laughs> and you stayed there five years. I mean, that's a significant amount of time, but at least you don't have regrets. Like, Oh, I wonder what would have ever happened if I had worked there. Like you won't right, ever have right. that. Right. 
and the uh -huh. learning was unbelievable. Like, you know, literally it was like learning from the best patent attorneys in the country. So to have that opportunity, I'm really grateful for it. It just was not, it, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't fueling me. I just felt uh, like no purpose um, to get, you know, to get IBM their whatever, like 20,000th patent is not fulfilling for me. Uh, what I'm doing now is I have inventors that are, that literally start with nothing and that their idea, some of them have retired off of their ideas. Others have built entire companies. Um, I have uh, one inventor like Troy Falatra, he's changed uh, the Coast Guard requirements for uh, water safety products. Uh, so they're changing entire industries uh, with their ideas. So that's- I love that. I love and, stories. And I'm working directly with the inventors. I, I don't even take on clients now if it's uh, if it's going to be work coming from in-house counsel to me and the the lawyers telling you what to draft and what and I don't get to find out from the inventor what they believe the unique aspects of their invention is. That's not the kind of work. That's not what I built my practice for. Oh wow. Okay. So you'll actually turn those people away. Yeah. Yeah. We have. We had. Um, uh, years ago, we did early in my practice, we, we did some work for Motorola and it was not, um, it's, it's just not fulfilling. And I, uh, I didn't meet with the inventors. Again, it was meeting with an in-house attorney who would review my work, provide feedback, but there was no direct contact with uh, the inventor. And that, that to me, that's, that's the best part of my job. That's the exciting part. Um, and that's where I think I can make an, a difference. And that's where there, there's plenty of law firms that will do corporate patent work, but there are not a lot of them that are putting a real effort into representing individual inventors and small startups. Um, and so I think that's where there's a need in the marketplace as well. There's probably a lot of attorneys that'll hear this and go, what? He turns business away? No. <laughs> what? Um I guess my thought, and, and I think, you know, other people might ask this too, is why couldn't you just have associates do that part? Like you do the stuff you actually want to do and just have the associates do the other stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I think it's, it's just a very different way that you have to orient your practice. I mean, there, uh, I mean, I guess conceivably it could be uh, possible, but a lot of times the in-house attorneys, they also want direct contact with, so they, they would want my direct involvement, my looking at the claims. Um, and if there was a, if there was a difficulty in growing my practice through small startups and individual inventors, then that might be something I would consider. But I really feel the, you know, maybe the universe is just, uh, it sounds, it, it's, it sounds almost crazy, but the, uh, that old quote from the book, The Alchemist, is when you want something with all of your heart, the entire universe conspires to make it happen. Like I, when I started my practice, there's no such thing as a show called Shark Tank uh, that's, that's directed specifically towards small companies and individual inventors. Um, there was no, there were no such things as, as a Zoom call or uh, uh, ways to wear a patent attorney could get clients outside of their own backyard. So uh, at that time, it was, you, you, there's a lot more of a need to go after corporate work because 
there weren't enough inventors concentrated in any one city unless you went to Palo Alto or Silicon Valley, California, New York, the, the huge big cities. But other than that, a lawyer couldn't really grow a substantial practice off of small startups because they weren't located in sufficient density in any one city. But this is where the, the universe has a wonderful way of kind of making it things perfect for my practice because I don't need people to be concentrated in one city anymore. I can through just like how we're speaking now um, through Zoom. I mean, most of my consultations now are uh, are video conferences and the inventors can be anywhere in the country. So I don't need them to be concentrated in one city and I can uh, grow a substantial practice by helping inventors all over the country instead of the old way was to have a practice either close to the patent office uh, because at that time you had to file applications and there was an advantage to hand delivering applications to the patent office versus a speed advantage versus mailing. Uh, and all of that's gone. I mean, now I can file from here in my office in South Florida uh, just as quickly as somebody who's next door to the patent office in Arlington, Virginia. Like there's no advantage to being in close proximity to the patent office anymore. That's really cool. I'm very jealous of you and immigration attorneys because they can have clients in other states. It's not just limited to the one state. Right, right. Not that I'm anxious to do divorce in a lot of other states. Well, <laughs> and, and you say, you know, the grass is always greener on, in some ways, on the other side, because uh, like I would go to large, you know, like whatever, like a, a, a trade show or something or a, a business show. And sometimes my wife would accompany me to those and she would come back with like 10 possible uh, patients that, that would, you know, that have dental needs. And I would say, you know, everybody's got teeth. So at some point or other, like the network <laughs> would work for her. Um, and I would never like that type of marketing and growing my firm never worked because I would go and I wouldn't find a single person that had, you, you know, one out of maybe 10, 15,000 people might have a new idea. I could go, you know, that's why you don't see patent attorneys advertising in, you know, like sports stadiums, because you might have 50,000 people in that stadium and three of those people have ideas, but all 50,000 have teeth and uh, going to where the, the grass looking greener on the other side is a divorce attorney. My gosh, how many of those 50,000 people could possibly end up needing a divorce? I don't know your stats that well, but I imagine the divorce rate's close to 50%. So that's, that's a. Yeah. Rate. Yeah. I see that. I see that. And I want to ask you more about in that. Other words, you don't need to go beyond you know, even the smallest city oh, yeah. has enough uh, potential clients for someone practicing divorce law or for a dentist that it's, yeah. everyone would have a need. Well, I always hear you have to find out, you know, you have to really think about where is my client? Where are they? Where do they go? What do they do? You know, what do they watch? What do they read? Think what kinds of activities do they engage in and go to those places where you get in front of them. So, you know, I, we could talk about that for me. It's probably different than where you would find your people. So where do you find your people before you answer that though? I have to ask you this question before I forget. Um, when you worked at that law firm for the five years, when you went there, did anybody ever say anything to you about that phone call and 
I mean, that must have been sort of an unorthodox way to get a job there. Oh, I mean, were you yeah. sort of like a little legend there? <laughs> um, well, you know what? And the reason they didn't is I was just so, uh, you know, just so embarrassed. Like, you know, you kind of feel like, and I, I went through, what's that term for when you feel, um, uh, gosh, that you don't belong. Like it's um, like imposter, imposter syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. I went there and I'm like, Oh my God, look at, you know, all these people are like, the, you know, they went to Harvard or Yale and they all knew each other because they had done summer internships at the firm. And I thought to myself, I am never going to ever tell anybody that I got rejected and then I got accepted. Um, so the first time I really told that story was during my Ted talk. And in fact, I didn't just tell it. I brought up two slides of the two letters exactly five days apart with the date circled on them. And th those became my PowerPoint slides. And that's where, you know, you finally get to a point where you, you know, they say you, you uh, meet your demons head on. It's like, okay, you know what? That's, I'm not embarrassed about that anymore. In fact, that's just a part of, that was what was written for my path. I had to go through that route to become who I am today. And uh, so, right. the, yeah, so as far as now, I mean, since then, of course, I'm in touch with like friends and other attorneys. And since now, now they all know the story, but the entire five years I was there, not a soul knew that I would, I didn't even bring it up with the, the in-house HR person who wrote that letter. Like I just never, it's one of these things I said, okay, I'm here now. I'm not going to talk about that mistake you made in that rejection letter. And I'll overlook that. And as long as you don't bring it up, I'm not going to bring it up. And neither one of us said a thing. So the entire five years, but it did, there was a part of me that every once in a while I was like, gosh, I, you know, am I, am I good enough? That whole imposter syndrome, like, am I, do I really have what it takes? Yes. I convinced them to give me a chance, but uh, is it, is it really something that I'm, I have what I need to um, made of the right stuff to, to cut it with these, like literally the best patent attorneys in the world. So. Well, it sounds like you did. I mean, you lasted five years. That's, I mean, I think if you were treading water, I don't know that you would have lasted five years. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So well, I don't know. know. I love that story. I think that's an awesome story. Thank you for sharing it. Thanks. So let's talk about where, where do you find your people? Where do you find your clients? I'm, I'm curious how you market and advertise. Yeah, so, and it's funny, a lot of the, uh, there's a, a conference where I, I spoke a few years ago, uh, a law firm growth conference where it, the title is the best thing I've done for my law firm. And I would say this was about three or four years ago when it's just as I got over the imposter syndrome and let me, you know, uh, the hesitation on talking about how I ended up being invited to join this firm, I also got over uh, a hesitation of, of letting my personality show in who I am. So, uh, you know, no longer uh, would I, you know, my office, when we, we moved offices and I, uh, when we bought the new office building, we were decorating it from scratch and it, everything was gray, it was dark wood furniture and all of that. I said, you know what, I'm, my favorite color is red and I'm going to put that into the office and it's going to attract the clients that are looking for uh, that in a lawyer, some, you know, that are not put off by somebody being creative and 
having their own personality. And it might turn off corporate client work, which is fine with me because that's not the kind of work that I'm really uh, fascinated by. So that's when the walls went red, the conference room, our conference room chairs, uh, and I did a LinkedIn article about this. They're like gaming chairs. They're red and black. They're not like, I would say, unlike any other law firm chairs or conference room you'll find anywhere. But that, that, that makes me happy and, uh, and I feel creative there. The whole environment is to, to get me in the right mindset and the right mood to, to do the work I do. And I think that's made all the difference because that's uh, it's the clients can see that inventors will come in and they can see when somebody genuinely enjoys the work they're doing as opposed to uh, going into patent law because it's, you know, when I started in patent law, it wasn't a, a hip trendy area of practice at all. In fact, there was, I think I was the only one, one or two in my entire law school class that had an interest in, in patent law. Uh, that was before uh, American Inventor. That's before Shark Tank. That was before this whole startup culture where people saw that earth-changing ideas can come from individuals. That's so, so cool. And, you know, wh- when we were talking about this a little earlier, when I said, oh, my God, you turn clients away, you know, I think, and I hear in coaching circles, and I, I am appreciating this more and more, is that when you say no to some people, or anything in life, when you say no to something, it makes room for the things that you really want. So I think in this case, when you say no to the kind of clients that really don't light your fire, it makes room for the ones that you really do want. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things, I mean, especially right now with, uh, with it being so hard, and I know you as a business owner as well, it's not, it's not easy finding team members to join and grow a practice. And every once in a while, there's this temptation where you see somebody is not an, an ideal candidate, but you have a real need. And there's this temptation from a business to say, okay, let me get this person. And I, for now, like instead of, you know, it's not Mr. Right, but it's Mr. Right now or Miss Right now. And then when the market changes, then we can get somebody else. But it's kind of really similar to what you said about uh, when you say no to things, you make room for uh, something else. I think when you bring somebody on your team that is good enough, uh, they take up a slot unless you're, you know, they take up a place that could have been uh, taken by a superstar. But you get somebody that's not bad enough to fire and not good enough to be a superstar so you're really holding your company back when you do that, because now you've got somebody mediocre or good enough. Like maybe you've got a C plus, B minus uh, staff member, team member, uh, but that's not what your practice really needs. If you really want to achieve your goals, you need an, an A, A plus team member. And it's hard to do. This is advice. What are the pieces of advice that are easier to give than take yourself? It's yeah. like be in pain and struggle without anybody because you're holding that spot open for the perfect candidate. And it might be, might be two months, it might be six months, but you're better off in the long run holding that place for somebody that's a superstar than letting somebody mediocre take it. Like I'm, I'm guessing, I'm assuming most businesses are not gonna make the mistake of getting a DRF staff member. And, and those, they don't really take up the space for long because if you get a staff person, a team member that's a D or F, uh, 
if you're if you're a conscientious business, they shouldn't be there 90 days later. So they've only taken yeah. up spot for 90 days. But the really dangerous hires are, in my opinion, are the the C plus B minus hires. Because once you get a C plus or B minus, they're not they're you know it's easy to overlook them. There's bigger fires at the company and a C plus B minus can last for years inside your organization. Whereas a DRF candidate is, would be gone, but a C plus B minus could just be, they could, they might even last forever because unless you grow to where you need two of them, they're yeah. good enough. And good enough is the enemy of great. You are so right. I learned that the hard way looking back on things and I'm wondering, how did you learn that? Did you learn that the hard way too? Or did you actually take coach's advice? Because I know I've heard this advice before, but sometimes you have to experience it to really get it. Yeah, um, I've, I've heard that advice a lot, but I'll, I'll be honest, like I it didn't, uh, I, I learned it the hard way because, you know, uh, and, and part of, and every business owner will, and you don't learn it until you somebody else comes in and joins your team who really is a superstar. And then you look back and you say, Oh my God, I went four years without this type of help and for my team and for my practice. And why did I do that? Because there was somebody taking up the slot, like for, you know, just as an example, you can't have a, it's, it's going to be really hard for a company to have two marketing directors, like a director of marketing. So if you get a director of marketing at your law firm, that's okay, you have no impetus to change them. And you'll go four, five, six years, however long they want to stay is how long you will, your company will go with an okay director of marketing. Um, but then yeah. the, the else who steps in and just, oh my God, it, you know, the firm is gangbusters, your stress levels go down, the clients are happier, everybody's happier. And that's when you start thinking, gosh, I'm not going to settle for B plus team members anymore, or sorry, C plus. Yeah. Well, when I look back on times in my practice and I've been a solo since 2003, I was a solo in 2013. And then I partnered with my current partner in 2014. So we've been doing it long enough. And when I look back on the times where I'm, when I was happiest, when I was most content, things were humming along smoothly. It was almost always because we had a really good team in place at that time. Because even one person, one bad person can really um, affect things, you know, like one toxic person in an environment can just spoil the entire well. Um, but it's not always toxic people. Like you said, it could just be like someone who's just not an A, you know, someone who's a B or a C and your growth will be stunted. And so the times when I can look back where things were the best it was definitely because we had the right people in place. Yeah. So that the, the, the toxic people are not as, uh, as much of a threat because they're easier to identify and they don't take up as many years because pretty yeah. soon everybody knows, Hey, that's where the problem is. It's the ones that are, you know, that are good enough. Like that's really like, you know, good enough. They're not toxic, but they're not superstars. Uh, but in the long run, you know, yeah, you're right. I think you're right about that because you might look at that person and go, well, there's nothing wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's nothing wrong with them. Like 
I get people that come into my office for a divorce consultation. And sometimes the hard decision to make is for the person who can identify, you know, something specific that they don't like about their spouse. They just know they're not happy in the marriage anymore, but it's not like there was anything specific that the person has done, you know? So I, if there was, if there was abuse or, uh, or cheating or something like that, that would be a triggering event and the decision would be easier. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. Cause I've had so many people say that to me. It's like, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me that I'm not happy. Right. Because there's nothing wrong with with the other person. There's something wrong. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So, but I get it. I get what you're saying. And no, I mean it's a it's a strange and now and it, the analogy is not so much with with marriage or relationships, but more with staffing. If you like, it's is with cars. If you've ever seen somebody with a vehicle that they don't really love, but the car just won't die on them, like it's reliable and it keeps running but the paint's old and it's chipped and it's, but it's just, it starts right up and it's, you know, it's yeah. just okay. It doesn't give them joy. Um, but that vehicle, you, you only live for so long. That vehicle is taking up time in your life that if it's not your wow, then you need to get it to somebody. Cause there's somebody out there who would love to have that car. So, yeah. so, you know, it might be dull for you or whatever, but somebody really needs a reliable car that can get them from point A to point B and that's going to be their saving grace and let them have it. And you go get something that would make you happy. But it's if the car would constantly sputter and you have to have it towed and you're on the side of the road, those are the easy ones to make that decision. OK, you know, this one's got to go. But it's the ones that just keep going that you wonder. Uh, they're the ones that really hold back uh, the decision because they're, yeah. there's, there's no impetus to make that quick move. Yeah, there, we could probably find other areas in life too. I'll have to think about that more. Um, so I want to ask you what, where did you end up after you left that first firm that you thought was your dream firm? And it turned out it wasn't, where did you go then? Yeah. So, and it's, it's funny, it was not, um, these decisions and this is where as a business owner, I've gotten a lot better at quick decisions. I was not a quick decision maker. Uh, I should have, and it, it was, I took about three years to finally make that decision to go out on my own. And that's, again, what made it difficult is, of course, it's a phenomenal firm. And everyone you speak to, they're like, are you nuts? Like people died of, to work at Fish and Neve. The, the, I, made, I was making more money there than I had even imagined possible, like a big New York City law firm uh, helping pay off student loans. Um, like, you know, I recently got married, I had, uh, a daughter, another baby on the way. And so that like, like being comfortable is, does hold people back. A lot of businesses and entrepreneurs, you see when they get their start is when they get ended up somebody, something forced them to start their company. They either were fired or their company shut down or they were unemployed for some time period. And then they were forced into making a decision. But if none of those things happen, then you just, you know, you just keep procrastinating like, no, I'll quit next month or I'll quit next month or I'll quit. Um, yeah, bonuses are in January. And now as an employer, I know nobody wants to quit in December. So when it gets close enough to, or sorry, in December, when it gets close enough to the Christmas bonus time, well, let me make it 
to December and then I'll think about it again. And before you know it, you're waiting for another December. Yeah. Uh, what was my triggering event is I had a, a, a classmate at the University of Miami at the time that really that that was we were speaking and he's like, John, let's he was in house as well. Um, and he said, let's join forces and, and go out on our own. Uh, and I was just like, not yet, not yet, not yet. Uh, and then but eventually one time he said, I'm going to start on my own uh, with you or without you. So are you in or not? And that's when I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> right, I'm in. Good. <laughs> uh, and that was the triggering point. So, but it took, you know, hindsight's 2020 because I, you know, I, I feel like I had learned enough that I didn't have to wait that long to make that decision. But I, it's, it's funny. I see that decision on the other side now as a patent attorney, because I'm seeing inventors with their ideas. And when they come in, it's like, so how long have you had this? And sometimes it's like, well, three years, five years. It's like, oh my God, what? And especially after the 2013, when the law switched to first to file, like I get nervous. So like, you, you know, seven years you've had this. I just hope I do my search and find out that nobody else has patented it. Um, but I, you know, I can say that, but I do understand it from their position. There's no there's no impetus because it's it's their own. Like somehow all of us, uh, when there's external deadlines, you're forced to meet them. The IRS says, you know, whatever, file your taxes by April 15th. So that gets done. But there's nobody who's going to push an inventor to say, launch your product by whatever, file your patent. There's no external push for that. So those deadlines are the ones that just get keep getting put off. Yeah, yeah. I, I One of the laws, like, it's not Murphy's law. It's like some other law. You can Google it. It basically says, however much time you are given to do something, that's how long it will take you. So if you, you know, and I think it's true, you know, if, if I have like, you know, some project I have to get done in two weeks, I'll get it done in two weeks. If I get a month, it'll take me a month. It's not like I'm suddenly going to get it done faster. But I hear what you're saying. If you're an inventor and you haven't given yourself some self-imposed deadline, there just isn't one. So it really is incumbent on you to have that self-discipline and a sense of urgency yourself to get it done. And, And life gets in the way, right? There's, you know, like sometimes I'll say, well, why didn't you file before? And it's, well, I was... I was in college and that wasn't the right time or I was going through a divorce at that time and I wanted for that to be settled before I pursued this or whatever. There's always something like right now, every once in a while, it would get, well, I'm waiting for the pandemic to end (laughs) before I make this decision. Uh, But sometimes it's, you know, you just, you can't because those are the deadlines. They're your own. They just keep being put off and the outside world is going to, have their own deadline. So you'll be doing, you'll be filing your taxes when you need to file. You'll be doing all the other stuff for others. Even as lawyers, we're guilty of this because we have court imposed deadlines. So we'll meet all of those deadlines, but our own personal items that there's no one saying, go ahead and do this, that gets delayed. That's why so many lawyers like die without a will because there's no, you know, now if the state bar says, you have to have a will to practice, continue practicing law, we'll all get it done. The state bar tells us how many CLE courses to take. So we all get our CLE courses in, but we don't, we don't update our, our, our wills because 
we'll do that yeah. next week or after Christmas, after New Year's, after whatever. Great Depends. example. A friend that practices, yeah, sorry to cut you off, oh, practices okay. in this area. So the pandemic's been an impetus for a lot of people to, to work on their estate plans and their wills, because now it's that external, there's no real deadline, but nobody knows you know, who's going to get COVID and if it's going to get serious. So that created enough fear to actually cause them to take action. Yeah. Um, speaking of CLEs, and this is sort of embarrassing, but I was one of those people in New Jersey, we have um, reporting deadlines in groups. So I'm the compliance group that has to report at the end of 2021. And ordinarily I would be out going to different events and I'd get credits, no problem. But because of the pandemic, I wasn't doing anything. And I real I did not realize until December that I didn't have my credits, that I had no credits. And I ended up having to do a whole bunch of on-demand and webcast um, CLE credits for like literally like almost like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I was doing it on December 31st during the day. Oh, wow. So, you know, not proud of that. I'm like, what? I kept saying, why did I do this to myself? I'm not doing this next time. But I did it all at the last minute, like literally like the, the last hours that you could be doing it. I was getting my credits. So I can totally relate to that. I don't know if you're one of those people that always has everything done early. I'm not one of those people, like whatever the date is, it's due. Like that's probably when you're going to get it. So I can relate to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, you know, if you would put that and it's it's it, we don't put deadlines on our own stuff. Right. So when you know when to have uh, your website redone, like that's one of those things. Oh, well, I'll put it off, put it off, put it off. But again, the bar is a great example because they, they you know, give us set deadlines and there's huge consequences if you don't um, if you don't meet them. I don't I didn't. Um, it wasn't this year, but several years ago. Uh, the, if you don't get this, your CLE in, in Florida, at least like they'll change on the Florida bars website that such and such is not eligible to practice law and, uh, and sure. And they're, they're very fast about that. So I didn't get the, I had the CLE, I didn't post it. And a client called and said, Oh, did you know you're not eligible to practice law in, anymore? And I was like, Oh, what are you talking about? And I looked up and saw that was the case. So yeah, the consequences are huge and they have external deadlines, but we need to start. And I tell my clients that to set them on ourselves for our own stuff. You probably have that with your own clients that you're uh, advising as well, like somebody that's trying to get advice on an, on a divorce, but there's no, you know, what's the perfect time to file if there's no triggering event, there is no, you know, there's no perfect time to file. So they're just, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we get that all the time. And and that's something that we sort of coach people on in our marketing is, you know, there's never going to be a right time to get a divorce. There's always going to be some reason to put it off. Um, so, but I think that's sort of the, the theme in, with most things is you have to create the sense of urgency yourself. So you started your law firm. It sounds like you had a partner at some point in time. So how, when did that change? When did you become the patent professor? Yeah. So, uh, that was, well, I, I started teaching at, uh, at Nova law school and at a time when there were not, you know, most law schools didn't even have a course on, on patent law or certainly not trademark law. 
if anything, they might have an intellectual property survey course. Uh, so I became known as the, my nickname was just the patent professor, but that didn't become the firm's uh, name at that time. I was uh, still Golden Rizvi um, or John Rizvi PA. Uh, but then I, you know, as more and more people started referring to me as the patent professor, uh, I thought that would be a great fit for uh, for branding purposes. And, um, you know, and, and and my partner and I, we were together for many, many years, I would, until about 2015. Uh, but we started kind of not seeing eye to eye on uh, a lot of things. And it's, uh, and as our I wanted to really have a practice that focused uh, specifically on individual inventors and uh, and small startups, and not and not just routine patent work for larger corporate um, offices. I was more felt stifled by uh, uh, trying to pursue the corporate work and like to do fun stuff like the. Uh, like the rap about patents or uh, or the painting the, the walls of our office. None of this could have been done in a partnership because I don't think any other partner would like <laughs> the walls to be this color. And certainly my prior partner was was concerned about like, John, this, you know, like about, about what people would think. And my practice didn't start growing until I stopped caring about what a lot of people thought and started doing what I thought made me happy because then I found that there's a lot of people that could see that and some were turned away. But as we talked about before, the, the, when you start focusing on your, what makes you happy and what you want, you're not going to be perfect for everybody. And the ones that are not comfortable with that, they'll find other attorneys that they, they will match with better, but there's clients that like you, they really like you and they, they, uh, they buy in completely. And that's, uh, and, and they, you know, I, I think everything just ended up falling into place at that time. Well, it was like what we were saying earlier about being authentic. Right. It definitely. You, I think you can sense when someone's really being authentic and when they're just kind of just filling a role or following a script. And I, what attracted me to you to invite you to be on the show is um, I follow you on social media and you post a lot of inspiring things there. You know, you talk a lot about your, your, your goals, your dreams, um, you know, being true to yourself and, and the success that you've experienced as a result of that. And I, I love it. Keep doing it. I love how you have posted pictures of your home and, you know, when you have some new success, like you were able to buy something that you had dreamed about many years ago, you you'll post about that. And I really love that. And I hope that you'll continue to do that. So I want to know, where did that come from though? Cause I know we've, we've traveled a little bit in, in the same coaching circles, but right. where did you really learn that? It, did it come from coaching? Did you kind of have that mentality before? Well, it's, uh, I, I mean, I had always heard for years and I, uh, that if there's, you know, I mean, there's this, there's somehow, and I wrote a LinkedIn article about this, like in our in the culture in general, there's, there's an embarrassment about effort. Like people are not, nobody wants to admit to like really trying for something because then everybody knows they're really trying for it. And then if it doesn't work out, you don't get to say, 
well, gosh, I didn't really want that anyway and save face. So it goes back to, you know, in school when everybody wants to say, oh, I aced this exam, but I didn't know it was today or whatever. Like, you know, just I'm just naturally brilliant and smart and uh, or gifted and talented and stuff just works out. Nobody's going to be I studied 11 hours for this. And I got to, you know, because then everyone's like, oh, gosh, he studied 11 hours. And then when you get that C plus or whatever, like, oh, gosh, what, what is it? So I finally decided uh, and it was that mixed with this. A lot of coaches will tell you if you want to achieve something to tell people so that your close inner circle will hold you accountable. Like smoking is the typical example and losing weight might be examples. If you tell all your if you're a smoker, your closest people to you know you're a smoker, your spouse, your family, your kids tell them first that, hey, after Thanksgiving, I'm going to give up smoking. And now, and tell your office, tell your staff, tell your friends, now you've got that external pressure, you know, kind of holding you back, reminding you when you go to take out a cigarette, or if you want to lose weight, like you're out with friends, you know, they're going to hold you accountable when you try to order that double scoop of whatever, like chocolate peanut butter ice cream or whatever, they'll hold you accountable. So that's when I uh, started and even to my own staff, I would, uh, talk about goals that I have. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's scary. It's risky. And even with your friends and whatever, because now if that they don't come true, then you've got a whole bunch of people that looked up to you and you have your credibility at stake. And like, well, you said you're going to help a hundred inventors before the end of the year. And we're at whatever, like 82 only. So that, that is what I started doing. And in my social media, I started, of course, talking about like successes when we achieve the goals. But what's scarier is talking about goals in the future. So that part took a lot of um, a lot of personal development before I realized. And that's where that article on LinkedIn was about. It's, it's about time as a in general, people got over the embarrassment of of effort. Like, you know what, I'm, there's this, uh, and there's this, well, I want to, if, if, if you would say, if somebody would say, I want to uh, swim for the Olympics. Now, all of a sudden, there's this incredible amount of pressure on you to, to get good, right? You've got to get good. And now you can't, oh, but didn't you, you know, years later, say, well, didn't you want to uh, swim? Or you can't say, no, it's just something fun. I was like, no, you told me you were going to, uh, you know, go for the gold or silver, you wanted to swim for the Olympics. And that's, that's the risk. That's the downside. Uh, but then I think about it, if your goal is aspirational enough, and there's a quote that I say, if it, if it doesn't scare you, then it's not going to inspire you. So uh, what I had spoken to my, uh, my team here at the office, that I said, I want a, a patent to create a patent firm that is national in scope, and is just like John Morgan is, you know, um, for the people is his slogan as a personal injury attorney, the largest personal injury firm in the country. Like I want to be the patent firm for the people, for inventors, for small uh, uh, startups. And that is scary to put out there You because you, you put it out there, it's out there in the universe. And now uh, I can't five years from now when the firm is not on the growth trajectory that I want, Oh, well, I just want a small boutique practice. Like, no, John, you don't, because you told us what you wanted. Uh, and that's kind of forcing me. But like, you know, the smoker who says, I'm going to quit, you can't say, 
Well, I really didn't say I want to quit. Yes, you did. You told us you were going to quit and you didn't. So that's that's that little added pressure. But, uh, you know, if it doesn't, if you don't achieve it, like the, what's why is there embarrassment in effort? Like I'm going to give it everything I have uh, to achieve it. And with Steve Jobs famous quote is that he wanted to put a dent in the universe. Well, this is the dent in the universe I want to make. And, you know, so it's out there. And if that dent, if all it, I get seen as hitting my head against <laughs> you know, a brick wall and I don't make a dent, I'm, I've gotten to the point where I'm okay with that. Um, and I'm over the embarrassment of effort. Okay. So I tried incredibly hard and I didn't make a dent. So that's, that to me is something, once you get comfortable with that, then I think you're okay telling people about your goal. Well, I'm, I mean, I would say you've made a dent, but you know, everybody's dent, if you will, is, you know, defined differently. And, and that's for you to decide where the dent is. I would say though, that people are, are embarrassed by failure. You know, they don't want to be seen or perceived to be someone who has failed at something that they try to do. And I find that curious because I mean, intellectually, I, I can say I'm not afraid of failure, but I think we all have that. You know, we don't want to be embarrassed by failure. So I, I'm not going to say that I'm immune to that, but we all have to fail. I mean, it's impossible to go through life and not fail. So when I think about this on an intellectual level, not an emotional level, it's like, why would any of us be afraid of failure? Because we're all going to do it. We're all going to fail. There's always going to be goals that we don't reach. Maybe we don't reach it as quickly as we want. Maybe we have to just kind of, you know, adjust the GPS as we go along. Um, so that it's interesting how a lot of us have that. I guess it's ego. There's really nothing, right. no then, other explanation. Then, uh, you know, so if you fail, but you want to be able to say, well, I didn't really want that anyway, right? Like the sour grapes, like, okay, those grapes are too high, but the ones that are too high, you just say they were most likely sour and I, you know, it's no big deal, but it's tough to, to come forward and say, you know what, I want that. And that's what I'm going to try for, because then if you fail, that's it, you burn your, your boat, so to speak. And now now you're out. Now it's out there. Your ego. Yeah, it's out it. there. It's out there. Public. I wanted this and I didn't get it. And that's it versus, oh, yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to pursue that anyway. Um, you can't so, face if you've gone on social media and told everybody that this is what I want to do. So what's your goal now? Like, is, I know you have probably lots of goals, but is there something you can share with us, like something with your firm or, you know, a material thing that you want or a vacation? Like, is there something you can share with us? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, as far as uh, the firm's goal, I'm looking at uh, really to utilize the, I, I, I see it as a gift. I see this um, kind of convergence of technology and Zoom and this pandemic as a, the perfect impetus to take my firm national in a way that it's always been there. I've always wanted to do it, but a lot has changed in that the technology, it's not like Zoom was invented with the pandemic, but what has changed is the uh, people's comfort level with hiring professionals that they've never met in person. Like there was a small segment that was always comfortable with that, um, but this pandemic has made 
the minority now are the people that want to meet somebody face-to-face in person. I have, I have clients 10 minutes from the office that will have a client meeting and they'll request that it be by Zoom instead of in person. So the, it's just such a drastic change. And that has me excited because now, because my client base is not concentrated in any one geographic area. Now the, the expression, the world is your oyster, like literally inventors that are passionate about their idea anywhere are, uh, are inventors that I, my firm can be able to help. So as far as that's where our growth rate of, of 30 to 40% per year, I think is uh, really achievable over the next five, 10 years. Awesome. Well, I'll be watching you on social media. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I have two more questions for you. Okay. One, have you invented anything? Do you have any patents? I don't. uh, And you'll find it's funny. You'll find very few uh, patent attorneys end up having patents of their own. And I, uh, I think once you start working as a patent attorney for any amount of time, you develop uh, expertise in more than one area. And then it ends up being, I see a lot of clients see that as a possible conflict as well. So uh, dental clients, my wife's a dentist and I have a lot of uh, patents in the dental field. And uh, I would feel, I I know there's many of them would not feel comfortable if their own patent attorneys out there patenting dental inventions as well. Um, Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I did never thought about that. Um, So no more rubik's cube nope inventions Uh, what are some of the more interesting inventions that you can talk about that you've seen in your practice like was there anything that turned out to be really huge that you played a part in or that you think will be so uh i mean there's 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 several but one that that stands out is uh, a client of mine His, his name is alex gomez and uh he's again one of these inventors that is is like it's inspiring because of how passionate he was about his idea. Uh, he was a medical student and he was surprised that in the, the hospital rooms, the doctor's instruments would get fogged and they would like either rinse it off in a flask and then go back into the lens would get fogged and then go back to their surgery or just rinse it off underneath the faucet and go back to Alex. Like this, this was Again, went against everything he was taught in medical school. It was septic. It caused infections. Uh, there's bacteria. It was bad for the patients. Uh, and but when he told others doctors about it, they they called him nuts and like this is how it's always been done. So he created this surgical lens defogger, and it was this this rough prototype that he came in. He put it on like the corner of my desk, and he said, "John, I don't care what they say. This is going to change." the way surgeries are done in hospital rooms win this patent for me. Uh, And I still like his confidence was so inspiring and he dropped out of medical school. Like he, he literally gave up everything to pursue this idea. Uh, We filed a patent for him and two years after his idea was, was purchased by Medtronics for a hundred million dollars. And wow. today it's literally, it's used in millions of surgeries nationwide. He has changed the way uh, laparoscopic surgery is conducted and how surgical camera lenses are cleaned in operating rooms. Doctors aren't rinsing them off in 
flasks of, uh, of water anymore. Uh, they're using his device. That is so cool. I love that. I love that story. Does he ever regret not going, finishing med school? I guess not. He's rich now, but still. But, yeah. But, you know, even beyond that, uh, of course, the, you know, the money's there, but his impact on medicine is a million times more uh, with his invention than he could ever possibly do as being, you know, as being a medical doctor. So I don't think even professionally, I think he's very satisfied with that, despite the, the financial returns. I have a lot of inventors, and this is the, like another myth is that inventors are going into producing their idea for the financial return. I have so many clients that are like, listen, I don't care if I don't make a cent from this, but they believe so strongly that their idea is needed. This is going to save lives. This is going to make something better that's needed. This is, you know, we have uh, especially inventors that have that are facing a, a disease or a medical problem or uh, someone that's handicapped, like if they believe that this, like we like a, a product would help others walk better or see better clients that have vision issues. And if they don't get financial re return from it, the satisfaction of having their product out there um, make a difference in the world. Like that's huge. I think inside of all of us, we all want to make a dent in the universe and uh, invention is is sometimes they say you're not you're not consumed by your invention doesn't consume you like or you don't consume your invention like the idea consumes you the dream consumes you and it's it almost as if you're supposed to bring it to market you're supposed to do something because that's why it was given to you and these inventors that I speak with that's that's what I want. That's who I want. I don't want the corporate lawyer that's at Motorola now that's tasked with getting 120 patents done by an outside firm. That's not what my firm's for. My firm's for the person like Alex Gomez that has the idea himself. He knows he's going to get one chance to get this patent right. And, and he comes to my firm for that. Well, I'm, I admire what you're doing. I, I really do. And I thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all these wonderful stories with me. I feel like you probably have so many more. And if I'm ever in your neighborhood, I'd love to stop by and see the red walls and, and oh, talk to you more. And we're in South Florida. So it's, you know, at least this time of year, it's gorgeous down here. So you're, uh, you know, July, August, it's going to be different. <laughs> yes. But, but we put up with all the heat for these next few months. Yes. Now I will put links uh, for my viewers in the show notes for your website and where they can find you on social media. Can you tell me what is your Instagram handle? Uh, oh, it's the patent professor, the patent professor. So very easy to find you, but anyway, thank you. I'd love to do this again sometime if you're up for it. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for listening to wake up call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.